Welcome to the Fight Lawyer Podcast, where we discuss combat sports and the law. Our guest today is boxing promoter and pioneer, Kathy Duva. Kathy, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. You're welcome. So why don't you tell us a bit about Main Events Boxing, how you came to be involved with the boxing promotion? Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I... Uh... I met my late husband about 45 years ago, and uh, he was, uh, you know, his father is Loduva, and so, uh, you know, I started going to fights with them uh, virtually from the very beginning of our relationship. Uh, about 40 years ago, Dan started a promotional company, uh, Main Events, and uh, I, you know, when it started out, there were no employees, but, you know, I was doing the publicity and whatnot because I had studied journalism in college and had a job as a newspaper reporter, so I decided I could be the publicist, and that's how it started. And uh, over the years, you know, it developed and grew into uh, a much bigger company. Uh, back when, when Dan was alive, we were putting on lots of heavyweight title fights. We had Holyfield, Lewis, Pernell Whitaker, Meldrick Taylor, on and on and on, you know, great fighters um, that, 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 that we worked with here. And then um, he passed in 96, and... Uh, at that point, I was still, you know, raising my children. I, I enrolled in law school. I spent a few years uh, trying to figure out what to do. And then uh, around 2001, when I finished law school after the bar exam, I, I came back to work here. And I've been in charge ever since. Now, you mentioned you began your career as a journalist after college. What made you decide to take a run at boxing promotion? Well, I didn't. My husband was doing it, and I was just doing whatever he wanted to do. Um, Dan was Lou's son, and so he grew up with boxing, you know, in his life. Um, that was our talk around the dinner table. That was basically, uh, you know, what we did. And um, we were, uh, uh, how do you say, it? we would sit down and uh, together and, you know, on, on, a, on a weeknight after we all came home from work and sit down and plan a fight. You know, we would put the fights in a little ice rink in Totoa called Ice World where we had a nice run and um, that's where it started. During the course of that, um, my husband graduated law school, uh, you know, became a lawyer, decided to pursue boxing as his dream was to be a boxing promoter and, you know, as he said, compete with Bob Arum and Don King, and, and he, he did it. So I was just along for the ride, and, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, as I said, uh, for the first few years that we had our company, I was I was working first as a reporter and then later as a publicist at William Patterson College. and. So I was picking up the skills, you know, that I would need to do this kind of work um, and doing the boxing at night on the side. And then it, around the time that we promoted the Leonard Hearns fight um, in, uh, I guess that was 1981, um, at that point uh, I, I went to work full-time for the boxing. And you mentioned the Leonard Hearns fight, one of the biggest fights in boxing history. Was it at that point that you knew that this could be something that you can do? Uh, no, no. We Look, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, but Dan's dream was to be a boxing promoter. So, uh, you know, uh, as I said, Dan, Dan was like, Dan was very much a leader. He was, you know, the man with the plan. He's the guy who decided what everybody was going to do. So I just followed. And it, it took a bit longer um, after we signed the 84 Olympians, you know, which included Holyfield, Whitaker, Taylor, Mark Breland, um, Tyrell Biggs, Virgil Hill, who was with that group at the beginning. Um, they started fighting then on ABC, um, and then ultimately, you know, we, we moved over to HBO with, with some of them, and 
and, and then ultimately, you know, later with Lennox Lewis and a whole bunch of other fighters. You know, at that point, when we were riding high, you know, in, in the 90s, you know, it seemed like, okay, this may last. Um, and then Dan uh, came down with a, you know, brain tumor and passed it, you know, uh, before he was 40, I guess he was 44 years old. So, you know, at that point, it seemed like it wasn't going to last, but somehow we've managed to keep it going. And now after 30 years, what's the biggest change that you see take place in the industry? How's it evolved? Oh, God. Um, how's it evolved? Well, when I began, boxing was a major sport. When, when we were doing Leonard Hearns, um, you know, it was the biggest fight of all time. Um, the whole world stopped and watched. It was uh, on a level, you know, the way, the way the world stops and pays attention, you know, once or twice a year when Floyd Mayweather fights, well, that was happening for a lot of fights, not just ours. Um, that, the week of the Leonard Hearns fight, I remember walking past the newsstands in the airport in Vegas, and every magazine, including, um, like, you know, news magazines, uh, had, had them on the cover. So uh, <laughs> that, you know, that kind of... Uh, our sport doesn't occupy that position any longer. We are, we've become a niche sport, and we have a a uh, fairly good-sized niche of, of fans who are very uh, loyal and faithful and love the sport, but um, we've kind of, you know, as, as the NFL kind of blew, blew past boxing and became, um, you know, the juggernaut that it is today, um, you know, every sport has declined. Frankly, baseball has declined. Um, that's, just, that's just how it is. And uh, so we are we are now uh, in a position where uh, there's a lot less money in the sport. There's a lot less money to be made, um, but um, but it's boxing, and I don't think you know it's really ever going to go away. So uh, we we come up, we go down, uh, but but sooner or later we find some way to survive. So that's that's where we are now, figuring out what the next chapter is going to be. And you mentioned that 94 class of Olympians, considered by many to be one of the best ever. Why do you think American boxing declined, not since then, but gradually, I suppose? Well, because the, the funding for the amateur boxing program uh, disappeared. <laughs> um, and that's happened, you know, not just to, to boxing. I mean, it's happened to, to a lot of sports. Uh, the, the kind of public money that used to go into paying for those sorts of things just, just isn't there anymore. So... Uh, you know the 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 uh, the coach of the team back at that time was a gentleman named Pat Nappy. He was an excellent coach. There was enough money to take the U.S. fighters around the world, um, so that they could get competition. They could they could enjoy competition with uh, with fighters from other countries, so that when they got to the Olympic Games, they weren't they weren't participating in international competition for the first time in their lives. Um, sat, you know the, the the fights that were taking place, um, the, 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 the bilateral matches that were taking place, uh, they used to call them USA versus the world and show them on ABC in the afternoon. There was money coming in from television to pay for those fights. So fighters, uh, U.S. fighters were getting a great education. Um, what's happened over the years is as our, our funding has declined, um, the U.S. teams can't, af- can't afford, USA, Team USA cannot afford to go overseas time and time and time again and participate in these bilateral matches and get the kind of experience they need. Meanwhile, these teams in Europe, they're close enough together, they can drive you know, back and forth um, to, to have these, these, these matches, and they're getting that competition. So when the USA goes to, into international competitions, they are very pitifully you know, unprepared, and that uh, is not the fault of the uh, um, 
you know, coaches and whatnot, they, they literally just don't have the, uh, the resources to take them on to, to those kinds of meets. In fact, uh, in an effort to try to, to, to begin to raise funds um, to, to, you know, solve that problem, um, U.S. Amateur Boxing, uh, USA Boxing has just, just uh, instituted an, uh, an alumni association program. And uh, anybody out there who's interested, um, if you uh, if you want to send an email to n Anderson a n d e r s o n at usaboxing.org, um, you can get information about how you can join this this uh, alumni association. Uh, I think it's a forty dollar fee to join. Um, they're going to have their national championships out in Salt Lake City uh, in about another week, and. Um, they're 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 going to begin a push to to really find as many people who who watch boxing, who love boxing, who had a place in boxing, to start to find ways to raise money to support our amateurs, so that they can they can get that kind of uh, they have the funds to go and travel and do those kinds of meets, so that when they get into international competition, they're prepared to win. So I was, I would. I would encourage anybody who's listening who's a boxing fan to, uh, as I said, to get in touch uh, with USA Boxing. Um, you can also go onto their website, um, usaboxing.org, and um, find you know the way to, to join the Alumni Association would be a great way uh, and a nice gift for, uh, for the sport of boxing. In light of that, how does a promoter go about signing overseas and foreign fighters? Oh, they come and find me. <laughs> I don't have to look. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, the job we did with Sergey Kovalev is kind of the best advertising we could have ever done. Uh, he's someone who came and, and, and found me. Um, uh, several American promoters, all of them actually, had turned him down, um, and as well as the Canadian promoters. They just didn't see the value in a, in a Russian light heavyweight who didn't have an Olympic medal or, uh, you know, a big amateur background uh, to speak of. So, uh, he was brought to my attention by his manager, Agus Klimas, who who uh, asked to meet with, with, with myself and Jolene on his own, our matchmaker, one day, and uh, said, I've got this light heavyweight, and he's great, and I believe in him, and you just give him one fight, and after what you if you don't, I get matching with anybody you want. If you don't like what you see, I won't bother you anymore. Uh, so Jolene went out and found, uh, had a great idea to match him with Darnell Boone, who he'd had a tough fight with uh, about a year or two before, and said, well, let's see if you got any better, because if he's struggling with Darnell Boone, he's certainly not going to make it, you know, in, in, in the wider world. So she made the match. Sergey was eager to take it, and um, he blew him away in two rounds, and uh, we jumped on the opportunity to sign him. And ever since, uh, there has been a flood of fighters from Europe um, that have been knocking down our doors. <laughs> now, Sergey Kovalev, you mentioned, I was going to bring him up. Where does he go from here? Uh, he comes back to HBO on March 3rd. He's going to be fighting uh, in, in uh, Madison Square Garden in the uh, uh, theater again. So we're going to be working towards fights with uh, the champions, Bivol, Bidabriev, and uh, if he ever decides he wants to get in the ring with somebody who could beat him, uh, Donna Stevenson, although we're kind of, kind of waiting around for somebody to beat him, so maybe we can go after whoever that is because he doesn't seem to want the fight. And how long have you been trying to get the fight with Adonis Stevenson? I know he's been on the map probably since Sergey fought Nathan Cleverly, and nothing's been able to happen for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was when he fought Cleverly, 2013. That's how long we've been chasing him. He's, he, does, he, he doesn't want any of it. That's just how it is. He hasn't fought, he's been a champion now, what, he hasn't fought a mandatory in four years. The last time he fought a mandatory was, was, exact, was in November, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, four years ago. So uh, he's, he's not interested in a legitimate competition. He just wants, wants to walk around and call himself a champion. 
Now, I know Sergey had a tough out against Andre Ward in the rematch. What could fighters do to combat bad refereeing, bad judging in a fight? I wish the hell I had an answer. We're, we, we, we do our best to vet the judges and, and to vet the referee. And, you know, if there's someone who we have a strong objection to, we'll let the commission know ahead of time. Uh, ask them not to appoint that person. But um, to tell you the truth, uh, I expected more from Tony Weeks. I, I can't explain what happened. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the uh, Sullivan Barrera fought in New York uh, last week. And, you know, he was being hit low repeatedly by his opponent. And the referee decided to take points away from his opponent and did not award the fight to his opponent for doing it. Um, but apparently in Vegas they do it differently. But what you can do... Um, I think I think uh, you, you you can only you can only say <laughs> speak your truth when it happens and uh, and recognize that this has been going on. I, I mean, I've been in boxing for 40 years now, and this has been an issue for 40 years, and surely was before that. It's not going away. It, they're human beings, and human beings uh, have different perspectives and see things differently and make different decisions. And, you know, they're not, they're not robots. Um, until they can figure out a way to get a robot to score, to, to ref a fight or score a fight, I just don't know. You can't take, you know, the, the human element out of it. And so as in any sport that's judged to be fair, um, there's always going to be unhappiness with officiating. That's just the nature of the beast. And are there any post fight remedies you could take? Maybe appeals, lawsuits, or are those mostly ineffective? No, it's like, uh, Got to realize the way the rules are written. They're they're like an umpire in a baseball game. Once they call a strike, it's a strike, whether you think it was or not. You can argue all you want, but you're not going to change their call. And that's pretty much what we're presented with here. If you can find that they've misapplied the rule in some way, you can go and you can uh, you can you can uh, appeal that kind of a decision. But um, you you really don't get anywhere except for except for going to the media with your argument, you know, hope that the commissions and the and the referees and whatever are going to think twice uh, next time, but again, you just uh you really don't have much recourse when you sign up to do this. You you know what the rules are, you agree to what, you agree to the rules. Um and you know, you recognize that um that unless we're going to fight till somebody collapses, we're going to have to, you know, have somebody judge the fight and that's that's going to always always going to result in uh controversy of if a fight is close, that's just that's just how it is. And you get the most controversy in the biggest fights, it seems, and that's probably because when you put two elite fighters together, you very rarely are going to get a blowout fight. So that's when the close fights happen, and that's that's when there's always somebody who's going to have a you know a different different point of view. Main events also holds the distinction of being the first boxing promotion to share event profits with their fighters. Can you tell us about that? Why that's important? Well, that was a, a, an idea my husband uh, instituted many years ago, and we still we still do it. Um, feeling that it's impossible to predict ahead of time what an event's going to do. The, the element of risk for us is enormous, um, and and his uh, his feeling was always like you know if you protect your downside, the upside will take care of itself. So um, you go to the fighters and you say, here we're going to split. <laughs> Put it this way: When you're negotiating with a fighter, you're going to say, "Well, here I want to pay you X, and and you know what the total is, and you want to, you know, you want to keep Y, and you're 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 basically arguing over the same money, and every time out, you're you're deciding how much I get to keep and how much you get to keep after we pay all the expenses. Um, that's how you, as a, as a business person, decide what you can pay somebody. I look at, I sit down. The first thing I do is I look at what what it's going to cost me to do everything, including rent the arena, set up the ring, pay the pay all the insurance fees, pay all the medical fees, pay the 
referees, pay the judges. I mean, it goes, the list goes on and on, all the travel, all the rooms, all the food. It's an enormous amount of money that we spend, all the marketing. So you sit down and you figure out how much money do I have to spend for all that and how much money do I have to spend for the undercard and how much money do I have to spend for the opponent. And then you say, well, when I'm done, you know, I've got, say, $100 just to make it easy. I've got $100. Now I'm negotiating with the guy who's in the main event. How much do I want to get paid? Well, if he tells me he wants a million dollars, I can't help you. Um, if he tells me he wants $100, I can't help you because I've got to pay my staff. So rather than have this back and forth um, every time, he felt that the fair thing to do was say, listen, if I make $100, I'll give you 80 and I'll keep 20 and uh, or I'll or, or I'll give you 75 and I'll keep 25 or I'll give you 60 and I'll keep 40 whatever that negotiation turns out to be and it's more about what what's a fair split for us because I have done all the work and taken on all the risk and perhaps invested a great deal of money in in in, in the fighter and marketing him and developing him and so um I am entitled to pay my staff and I'm entitled to make a profit at some point and the fighter, he's the guy who's getting in the ring and, and fighting and, and taking all the physical risks. So we agree, we start with the agreement that the fighter's entitled to the lion's share of the money that's left once we've paid all our expenses. And then it's just a matter of what do, what do we think is a fair amount for you to make and a fair amount for me to make. And that's where the splits came from. We're very transparent. We show the fighters, I mean, literally when we're on a split with a fighter, we will show them an accounting that will show every cup of coffee that my staff bought while they were out working on the show. And if there's not a receipt for it, I pull it out of the expenses and, and you know, and I pay for it. So uh, they get they get detailed accountings that go on for 40, 50 pages um, because there are a lot of expenses and a lot of different things that have to be done and paid for. And uh, it helps in two ways. It shows them we're being completely transparent and fair, and it also shows them how complicated what we do is. So because um, sometimes I think people don't recognize how much is involved in this. Uh, but that's that's the way Dan felt. You know, I, I can let people know up front that if, if you're worth it, if you win, if you become the champ, if you become a star, you're going to get most of the money, and uh, and I'm going to add value, and I'm going to earn my share because um, because when I get through with you, you'll be worth more than you are when I start. Understood. And how does the Ali Act impact promotion? Does it really hurt fighters, as some promoters claim? Um, it hasn't impacted us much at all because we always because what it does is it requires us to show them how much revenue we have. Um, so when we get into the bigger fights, we, we, the fighters have always seen how much revenue we have uh, because that we're working on splits, as I just explained. We show them detailed budgets going in. We show them detailed budgets with receipts coming out. So um, they've always known. So it hasn't really impacted me that much, but to promoters who were – uh, depending on smoke and mirrors and, and you know, keep, keeping information from fighters, um, you know, it's made their lives more difficult for sure. Uh, but, uh, as I said, that's kind of the way we've always done things. Sometimes it, it sometimes it's, it's you know, you're dealing with, with, with fighters and clearly, understandably, they're looking at it and saying, well, how much, you know, am I going to make? And they will look at a, uh, at a showing them, well, we have this much from the TV network and that much from the site and this much from whatever it is, sponsorship, foreign, and they see the total and they don't see the expenses. And so they go, well, you're, you know, <laughs> you know you're, you're taking in $100,000 and you're only paying me two? Well, you just made, you know, you just made $98,000. No, I, I have 90000 in expenses on top of that. <laughs> so um, they, you know. So, so what we try to do in that scenario is, is show them not just the revenue but the expenses as well. So hopefully they understand. 
Now, in the early 2000s, you worked a deal to get boxing back to broadcast television, shift away from the pay-per-view model. Why did you decide to work towards that? Because uh, I be- have believed from, from, the t- from the late 80s when networks stopped buying our fights that we had talked them into getting them to buy them, and we've literally been trying since the late 80s to get them back on board. Uh, it's very important. What ends up happening is, you know... Um, I've analogized it to baseball. Um, it would be as if television was buying the World Series, which is the fights on, on HBO, um, but they weren't going to buy you know, the playoffs or the regular season, um, which is what we used to do on those other, on cable and on NBC and you know, ABC and, and CBS. So um, when you have a sport where all you have is, a, is, is, is the, you know, the attic at the top of the building and you don't have the, the basement or the floors underneath it, it's going to collapse. And I think that's pretty much what happened to us. Um, the, the thing that took us off the networks ultimately was the, the uh, demise of the anthology shows, Wide World of Sports and CBS Sports Spectacular and NBC Sports World. That was caused by the, uh, the emergence of ESPN. Uh, before ESPN, those networks would buy tapes of sp- sports from all around the world. You know, you would watch skiing and from San Moritz, and you would watch curling from somewhere and swimming. And, you know, and, and a typical, typical day when you sat down on Saturday afternoon when you only had three networks to choose from was to watch these anthology shows, and you would see a, a whole menu of different kinds of sports and um, there was no internet, so you didn't know what the results were in advance, and you watched these tapes of things that might have happened weeks or months ago and, and were very entertained. Um, boxing was terrific in that format because they would, uh, it would buy a fight. Uh, they, would ske- they would put the show on around 3 o'clock. It would run till 6. They'd schedule the fight for about 5 o'clock. Um, they would bring the audience to the show with the fight because the fight would, you know, we, we always get eyeballs. Uh, they would... Uh, put the fight on at 5 o'clock. If it went the distance, great. If it didn't, they would just put some more tape, tape skiing in again uh, to finish out the show. Um, they weren't selling the advertising based on the idea that this is boxing. They were selling the advertising based on the idea that this is why World of Sports. It's the number one most watched sports program in, you know, in television, which it was at one time. Um, and so the sponsors bought it. When ESPN started picking up the rights to all of those fringe sports, started showing the whole event, um, the whole idea of the anthology shows just went out the window. People had a choice now. They, they didn't have to watch that stuff. They could watch the stuff going on on ESPN. They could watch it live. They could watch the whole event instead of the little clips that they were getting, they were getting shown on, on the network. So those anthology shows declined, and as they did, uh, the need for boxing declined with it. That's really what killed boxing on television. There were a whole other theories as to, you know, HBO killed it, this killed it, that killed it. Bottom line is sponsors have never wanted to buy boxing. They would buy Y World of Sports. They would buy Sports World. They would buy CBS Sports Spectacular. The networks never had a lot of luck going out to sponsors and saying, hey, Fighter A is going to fight Fighter B. Do you want to buy it? So, um, so as that happened, HBO jumped up and, you know, there, there was this inefficiency in the market. They jumped up and they, and, and they jumped in and they grabbed it. They didn't have the same problems the networks have. They don't have to sell sponsorship. They didn't have to worry if the fight ended early in one round because their subscribers, as long as their subscribers tune in at some point in the broadcast, they're happy. Um, that's all they need to do. They need to present their subscribers with things they want to watch. So whether they watch it for five minutes or for the whole broadcast doesn't really matter to HBO and Showtime. They just 
they just know they want to hold a subscriber, and they're going to hold a subscriber by showing them a sport that they want to watch. Um, so they were became the perfect format for us. Um, when we try to go to network now, when I did my deal with NBC, um, and, and we had some success, they were thrilled with what we did. Um, we were still in a position where the sponsors didn't want to buy it. And we were getting better ratings than when we were on NBC Sports, uh, Sportsnet. We were getting better ratings than just about anything else they had on the network. Uh, but the sponsors don't want to buy boxing. They, for whatever reason, they, they, don't, they shy away from it. They don't like the demographics. They don't want to take a... Although the demographics are getting much, much better. Um, they, they, nobody wants to take a chance. You know, if something bad happens in a boxing match, uh, the guy who talked his boss into buying boxing is the guy who's going to lose his job. So um, there's very little incentive um, for the buyers, and there's very little incentive for the network salespeople to go out and push it. We are um, unable to put the very, very biggest fights on network TV for the simple reason that a fight could end inside of three minutes. And if you're selling time to a sponsor and they don't get the time because the show ended early, then you have to give them make goods. You have to put their, their commercials on another show. This is not a good business model for network television. And, again, we come, keep coming back to why isn't it, you know, why, why doesn't Floyd Mayweather fight on network TV? The whole world could watch. It could be bigger than the Super Bowl. Well, the, the reason is that, if, that, that a boxing match could end inside of three minutes and the Super Bowl is going to last for three hours no matter who wins, no matter who plays, no matter how good the game is. They can predict how long it's going to last. They can sell out all their inventory. They can charge a premium for it. And they don't have to make, you know, give make goods to the sponsors unless the ratings really fall short. Um, if you go into a huge event and spend a ton of money on a boxing match and it goes short, that's a disaster. For network television. So while I think that boxing in a series form um, with mid to you know low and mid-level fights is absolutely feasible on the networks where you can fill up two hours with, with uh, you know your main event and if it goes short you, you, you show a, either a swing bout or you show a tape of an earlier fight. You know that, that model seems to work and, and, and it, I think it does pretty well. The problem is, again, somebody has to have the ability, the incentive to convince the sponsors to spend money on it. And we are dealing in a world where um, people who work for agencies just aren't going to go out on a limb like that um, and, and perhaps make a mistake. So we're waiting for the Internet because we have a great big niche and we can bring eyeballs. And when it when the tipping point comes and viewership is leaning more toward that than it is toward broadcast TV, and I don't know when that's going to happen, but when it does, um, we're a worldwide sport, and we have fans in every country, and we will be in a position to, I think, make quite a resurgence. But we're not quite there yet. And what do you say to the sector of the population that says, well, once Floyd Mayweather goes away, the sport ends. Once Oscar De La Hoya goes away, the sport ends. Once Pacquiao goes away, the sport ends. The sport will really never die, right? Yeah, I used to hear once Muhammad Ali goes away, the sport ends. <laughs> I've been around longer than you. Um, I'm sure they said once Joe Lewis goes away, the sport ends. <laughs> uh, that, that's just... Um, Every generation, you know, thinks that, uh, you know, what they have is the best. Um, you, know, it, you know, my father-in-law used to say, you know, the first fight was Cain versus Abel. It, it, it isn't going away. It, there's something about it. It's, uh, 
people have a visceral reaction to it. You know, they love it or hate it, but if they love it, you know, they're hooked. And um, I think it's uh, there's enough people out there who love it that uh, that will support it in some form. And again, in, you know, you're looking at boxing in this country. There are parts of the world where it's huge and continues to be huge. There's parts of the world where it's growing. Um, and so, for example, I think about, you know, the problems NFL football is facing right now in a generation or two, where are they going to get football players from? It's only played in this country, and more and more people um, don't want their kids to play. It's going to get harder and harder to find talent. We have a hard time finding talent here um, because we are such a developed country, and far fewer people are are interested in, in boxing, just like fewer people are interested in playing football. But there's always a fresh supply coming from some part of the world where they don't have it quite as good, and and, and there's people that want to come and, and try to make a, a you know a new, better life for themselves, like Sergey Kovalev. Um, I think the supply of boxers is is, is not going to be exhausted. It, it may just look different. There may be uh, you know, we went through a period where you know Mexican fighters were all the rage, and now the Russians have come, and there'll always be some part of the world where where people are going to. Uh, literally want to fight their way out of where they are. So, I, as I said, I think the Internet, as, as it, as when it becomes the primary delivery platform for, you know, viewing of all kinds, is, is going to be very friendly to boxing. And in 2017, looking back at it, I know it's a tough question, but in your mind, what was the biggest fight you put on, the one that you were most invested in? Was it Tyson Lewis, Gotti Ward? The biggest fight we ever put on was Tyson Lewis. Um, the most... Exciting win we ever had was probably Holyfield Douglas. Um, the Gaddy trilogy, Gaddy Ward trilogy, was just something so special. I, I don't even know what category to put it in. It has its own category. That was just magic. Um, and those are the things. Those are the ones, I guess. Um, and, and and Rocky Lockridge knocking out Roger Mayweather in the first round. Um, that was actually the second world title that we won. We won the first one a few months earlier when Johnny Bumpus won a world title, but a few weeks earlier. But uh, um, that, that 1984, when, when we, we had our first four world champions, um, it was Lockridge and Bumpus and uh, Mike McCollum and Livingstone Bramble, all won world titles when we had, had never had a world title holder before. Uh, that was another big one. So those are kind of the highlights. But the biggest fight that we ever did was uh, actually – as I said, Tyson Lewis. When Leonard Hearns took place, it was the biggest fight of all time, as was Tyson Lewis when it took place. And the difference uh, in the revenue was staggering. Leonard Hearns, um, you know, grossed around $40 million, and that was the biggest fight of all time. And when Lewis Tyson came along, um, that figure was up uh, closer to $100 million. And before we wrap up here, where could people go to find out more about main events, the fighters on your roster, any upcoming shows? Uh, well, we've got a website, mainevents.com. That's a good place to start. Also, um, you know, you can follow us on all the, all the various boxing sites. But my nice thing about boxing um, nowadays, you know, that's, that's, again, different from the way it used to be. Uh, you know, there was so much about boxing that you couldn't find out about because only the big things got covered. But now there are all these wonderful, you know, websites out there. Uh, type boxing into a search engine, you'll find all kinds of things. Uh, there, there's just so much information out there. You can learn about, um, you know, the sport at all levels and, uh, there's, there's a lot of great stuff, you know, a lot of great journalism being done by, by people who are, you know, fans of the sport. And, and uh, so they, most of what we do pretty much gets covered on the, on the major websites. Well, once again, Kathy, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for your interest, and we hope to see you March 3rd at the Theater at Madison Square Garden when uh, Sergey Kovalev will be back. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. And that's our interview with Kathy Duva. I hope you had a good time. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Dmitry Shaknovich. If you want to learn more about me, please visit www.dshacklaw.com. And this is the Fight Lawyer Podcast. Till next time, folks. <laughs>